You're listening to audio from Mercy's Door Community Church in Mascouda, Illinois. If you'd like to get more information about Mercy's Door, we'd love for you to connect with us on Facebook or check us out at mercysdoor.org. Well, in just about two months, Rachel and I get to celebrate our 14th wedding anniversary. And uh, our wedding uh, took place December 30th of 2007. I always get like a moment of panic when I like repeat that. I know it, but then you get to that moment where you're like, I'm going to say this out loud for everyone to hear whether or not I know my anniversary, and I just get stage fright. So we are coming up on 14 years, and, and, and because our wedding is just after Christmas, we, we typically are traveling for the holidays or are doing something, and so we always kind of have to make sure that we plan intentionally a, a good time to celebrate that. And so as we were just this past week discussing our anniversary coming up and what we were going to do, it just, it always gets me thinking again to kind of that, the, the, the honeymoon period of marriage, or so that's what people call it, right? Um, and for us, our story, maybe it's unique, maybe it's not, some of you guys have walked through this. So I met my wife in June of 2007. We began dating, uh, well, on the day that I met her. So we, we, uh, we were set up by her older brother, and he said, hey, come meet my sister. And I thought, Brad, does she look anything like you? Please no. And he assured me she did not, and, and, and she doesn't. She's, she's gorgeous. And Brad is very nice to look at as well. But we went on a date, and it was June. And then from that moment, we spent almost every day together until I left for grad school in August. The first week I was down in Texas at grad school, I bought a ring because I knew after spending a week away from her, I got to marry this girl. So we started dating in June, we got engaged in September, and we were married in December. It was, it was fast, it was furious, it was wonderful. I felt like I was living in like a, a Freddie Prince Jr. romantic comedy. Uh, if you guys don't know who that is, kids, go Google him. He was in every movie for about two years. Right? And so in the midst of a really, really sweet time in my life, we, we got to our wedding day, and everything was beautiful. It was romantic. I was obsessed with this woman. And then we walked down the aisle, and we said our I do's, and they pronounced us husband and wife. And a few days later, we, we, we went back down to Texas together this time as husband and wife. And the first day we were in Texas, we got into a huge fight my wife told me, rightfully so, after the way I was acting, I'm leaving, I'm going back home. I made a really snarky comment about how are you going to get there, you don't have any money, and neither do I. So she stayed, I think more out of the money aspect than uh, me being worthy of it. And, and, and honestly, I thought on the first real day of our marriage together, just the two of us, I thought, how are we ever going to survive? And see, the issue was... We were husband and wife now, not boyfriend and girlfriend, not fiance and fiance. We were husband and wife, and the reality was we had no clue how to be husband and wife. We were asking ourselves and each other the question, now what? Now what do we do? Now how do we live out of this new role, this new identity we've been given? We have spent, honestly, the first 18 chapters of Leviticus answering the question, can a sinful people dwell in the midst of a holy God? 
Can a sinful, broken, rebellious people actually be the beloved people of a holy, perfect, righteous God? And the answer that the Lord has given us through the gift of sacrifice and atonement that we've spoke so much about is yes. Yes, because of the mercy and grace of the Lord, because He has given away to purify, sanctify, cleanse, forgive the sinful people of God, they can be His beloved people and dwell with Him. But guess what? Now we answer the question, now what? Now what? How does Israel actually live as the beloved people of God, what does it look like for them to dwell in His midst, to go on, live in this new identity that they have? And the Lord God answers for us what it means, what it looks like, the now what for Israel here in verses 1 and 2 of Leviticus chapter 19. He says this, the Lord spoke to Moses. And he tells him, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Let me say that again. He says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Now, now the people of God throughout Scripture are described in, in many ways Right? We're told that to be the people of God means that we are treasured, that we are loved by God, that we are special, unique to God. We are told that the, the, the people of God are cared for, that to be God's people means that we are cared for, provided for by God. We are told that the people of God are protected by God, that He fights their battles, That He secures them. And it means the people of God have a a future that is secure. That they will flourish. All of these are descriptions of what it means to be the people of God. But being the people of God is not just to receive from the Lord. Being the people of God also means that we have a purpose a mission, or in the New Testament, a commission. And we find that, again, in the very earliest pages of Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2, where we are told that it is the job, the role, the purpose of the people of God to take His glory, to take His image, to take His goodness, His perfection, His wholeness, and to take it into all creation, into all the world. Israel is told that this is their job as well. And that purpose, that mission, is summed up in these words, Be holy, for I am holy. Now we've seen seen this played out. In in, in chapters 1-18, to we've seen this played out ritually. Where the Lord has said to Israel, I am holy, and therefore you must be holy. And therefore... The Lord God gives them sacrifices that atone for their unholiness, that make them holy. But now we are moving from the ritual or religious to the moral. 
we're, we're moving from the ritual to the moral, to the, 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 the actions, our interactions, our thoughts. Now listen, this probably, if you've been a part of the church, me saying that we are meant to be a holy people is not a shocking thing to you. Right? This seems to be kind of par for the course. It's a standard requirement in the church, if you will. There's just one problem, right? What's that problem? You're not holy. I love you guys, but you're not holy. And in case you feel like the pastor beats up on you, I'm going to invite you even right now. You can tell me the same thing. Okay, good. One person took me up on it. Maybe it's Pastor Appreciation Month or something. I don't know. I appreciate it. I'm not either. Right? And much like Israel, when they were not ritually or religiously holy, the Lord God needed to give them a way to become holy we find ourselves in that same position again as we talk about being the morally holy people of God. Israel could not work their way to become on their own ritually, religiously holy. And here this church, they and we cannot work our way to become morally holy on our own. The Lord God is going to have to do something. And here's the good news. I'll give it to you up front. He does. And he has already. What the Lord does is what I like to call the logic of redemption or the logic of the gospel. In uh, grad school, I I got a master's in public policy. And in undergrad and then in grad school again, I I took a couple of courses on logic. Logic. Now, now, logic is, is the study of reasoning, right? The study of how a good argument, a true argument, ought to flow, how discourse between two people ought to flow back and forth. And oftentimes, in the study of logic, we talk about if-then statements, right? So if I said to you, if it's raining outside, then it's wet, and you would say to me, no duh. Right? If something occurs, then something else will flow out of that. Those two phrases, the if and the end, they're called the antecedent and the consequent. Take that home, use that over dinner or with one of your friends. You're going to sound super smart. I found it on Wikipedia. It's good. Right? The if is the antecedent. It's the thing that has to occur before the then occurs. The antecedent leads necessarily to the consequent. Now here's why I'm telling you that. The world has a different logic than the gospel does. The logic of the world says that you are the antecedent. What you do, how you act, how desirable you become, the things that you can accomplish, the things that you can earn will lead to consequences. If you're desirable, then you will be loved. If you are worthy, then you might get the job. If you are kind, then others will be kind to you. This is the logic of the world, and quite honestly, hear this, 
it's oftentimes the logic of the church, except for the fact that it's not biblical. Because the logic of the Bible, the logic of the gospel, the logic of redemption flips that on its head. We are not the antecedent. We are not the if. The Lord is. What He does is what causes the consequences. And so if we want to be loved, it's on the Lord. If we are going to be holy, then the Lord needs to move and work. And if we are going to be a moral people, then the Lord must move and work. The logic of the Gospel is, the Lord has done. Therefore, you now are. The logic of religion is, if you can become, then you will be. But the logic of the Gospel is, the Lord has done, and therefore we now are. Now here's why I tell you this. The logic of redemption or the logic of, of the gospel is clear in Leviticus chapter 19. There's two primary, seminal, critical phrases in the entire passage. And one is repeated again and again and again. And the other comes at the very end and is repeated again throughout Scripture. The first is, I am the Lord your God. Look at how many times it shows up. The Lord says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Do not turn to idols for I am the Lord your God. Every one of you shall revere his mother and father. I am the Lord your God. Do not strip your fields bare. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. He repeats it again and again and again. Now, this is a true statement if it said, I am the Lord God. But there's this wonderful, beautiful, possessive word that is inserted in this phrase that changes everything, and it's the word, your. See, this, this is the statement of a husband saying to his wife, I am your husband. I am your man. I am your love, your provider. Right? The Lord has moved from what is true, I am the Lord God, to something that is true now and beautiful when he says to Israel, I am the Lord your God. Which means, you are now my people. Not one day you might become my people. Not if you're good enough you will be my people. Not if you earn it you will be my people. But he in fact says you already are. I am the Lord your God. And then at the end of Leviticus chapter 19, the Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus himself tells us that this is the summation of the Old Testament law. It is the, the pinnacle, the conclusion, the umbrella that captures all that the Lord desires for us to be in relation to one another. Love 
your neighbor as yourself. But I want you to notice which one of those two phrases comes first. It doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself, then I will be the Lord your God. What does it say? I am the Lord your God. Therefore, love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, we just went through a whole lot of dry information, and there's likely a lot of you that are sitting here going, okay, great. Thank you, Michael, for instructing me that we reread from left to right, from top to bottom. I now know which sentence comes first. Right, doesn't it? It's right for you to go, is this just semantics? Does this really matter? We have to love people, right? Let's get to it. Tell me how to love people. Or tell me that I'm not loving people and then tell me I need to go out and do it. Isn't this just semantics, Michael? And the answer is no. Because if the Lord is not our God, if we are not His beloved people, then hear me, church, you cannot love your neighbor as yourself. It's not just what comes first, but it's what leads to the next. And the fact that we are the beloved people of God is what leads us to be able to love others. Jesus puts it this way. I am the vine and you are the branches. You and I can only produce fruit as the life of the vine flows through us. We can only love others as we are loved by our God. And now here's what I want you to see. If I would have told you those words as we were walking through the Gospel of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John or one of Paul's letters, you would say, yeah, that's the Gospel. Hopefully. You'd say, yes, that's the Gospel. But guess what? The Gospel's in Leviticus. In Leviticus. In the Old Testament. In one of the most strange and difficult books that have really heavy, weighty commands and topics covered by the Lord. Hear this church. It's always been the design of God that out of our identity, as His beloved creation, chosen people from His love, grace, and mercy flows through us. Loving our neighbor as our self flows through us holiness. We are holy because He, our God, is holy. And so yes, today we're going to talk about what it looks like to love our neighbor as ourself, but hear this. We only love as He has loved us. And so let me show you two ways that that works out. Today, two ways that the Lord empowers us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Here are the two ways. First, we care for others as we experience the way God cares for us. We care for others as we experience the way God cares for us. And second, we give to others as we recognize all that we have been given. You ready? Let's jump into the first one. We care for others as we see how God cares for 
us. We've got kiddos, five kids from ages 13 down to three. And so our three-year-old Jude is in this sweet little uh, phrase, a phase of life where he is picking up phrases day after day after day. And so he'll say something completely out of the blue that we didn't know that he even knew what it means. Sometimes he doesn't know what it means. Uh, but he'll say it, and it's, it's cute, it's wonderful, and it's also terrifying. Because he's picking up on everything that Rachel and I are saying. And if you have kids, you know how terrifying that is. Because the first time you let something slip, or the first time you make a crosswise comment, or a rude comment, or anything else, and your kid immediately... The same kid that can never hear you when you're calling his name hears you whisper that under your breath and then decides that they need to repeat it, oftentimes at a church gathering, maybe a small group gathering that occurs weekly at your house. I don't know this from experience. I've just been told this by other people. Right? We're, we're in this phase of life with him. He, he's picking up everything. But honestly, if we're just being truthful... This is all parenting, right? 99% of parenting is not taught, it's caught. And if you don't believe it and you're a child, wait till you're a mom or a dad and ask yourself this question. How often do you say things that you swore you would never say that your mom and dad said all the time? I can answer that question all the time, right? Like, I am my father. And that's a good thing for my kids. And it's also like a moment where I have to come back to my dad and be like, hey, sorry about that. Sorry for all the things that I've done and sorry for the fact that I thought I would be something different. We learn primarily by catching things. We mimic what we see. Now here's the problem with that. We live in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And so, for me to tell a broken and fallen world to go and love one another, unless you have a better example, unless you have a better experience, you're going to love people the way that you have been loved by this world. And my guess, and I know this because I get to do a lot of counseling, is that most of us have been poorly loved by this world. And I know this because left to our own devices, left to our own impulses, we don't love people well, we love them poorly. You guys ever heard the phrase, hurt people hurt people? You know what the problem with that is? Hurt people hurt people. Who hurt people who hurt people. It continues down the line. The logic, if you will, doesn't end. It perpetuates. And so, if horizontally around us, the only example of love we have is broken and poor and less than, the only hope that we have to love people well is to experience a better love is to experience, quite honestly, a vertical love, the way that the Lord God Himself loves us. 
my daughter in preschool at their graduation was given a verse to memorize. And it, it, it's great, right, because it's preschool, and so the bar is real low, right? Like they get like Jesus wept, right? Like that's the verses they get to memorize. Hattie, to this day, who's now nine, has this verse that she was given locked into her memory, and it's 1 John 4.19. Anybody know it? I know Hattie would. It's right here. We love, why? Because he first loved us. All right, fantastic. After Leviticus, we're going immediately to 1 John, because you guys don't know it. Right? We love because he first loved us. And that is a cute, wonderful little coffee cup verse. And let me tell you something else. It will change your stinking life if you actually believe it. Because it is the foundation for the reality that we live our lives in as Christ followers. We love because he first loved us. Or another way to put it, the only way you can love is if he first loved you. Watch how this plays out in the commands to love that the Lord God gives to Israel. It begins in verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your, your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest or strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard, but you shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner, for I am the Lord your God. Several months ago, we went through the book of Ruth, and this law here in Leviticus 19 plays out. Right? This is called the law of the gleanings. Essentially, the command was this. Right? They didn't have great big combines to harvest their fields. And so they did it by hand, and it took a long time. And because it took a long time, what you couldn't do on the first pass was be meticulous. If you were meticulous in picking up every ear of grain that fell onto the ground, you'd be there forever. And so you would work the first pass and you would go quickly or as efficiently as possible. You'd grab the grain and if a little bit fell, you moved on. Right? Otherwise, you'd spent the entire day bent over at the waist and you wouldn't be going back out for harvesting the next day. The same thing went with vineyards. As you would harvest the vines and the grapes, inevitably, grapes would fall. And the Lord God says, do not go back. Do not go back and pick up what has fallen, but instead, leave those for those that are poor and those that are sojourners. Or another way to put it, because sojourners would likely be by themselves from another nation, leave those for the poor and isolated. Now, here's the truth. Israel doesn't owe anything to the poor and isolated. Right? This, land, this law goes into effect when Israel gets into the promised land and they actually are given land by the Lord. But when Israel is given land by the Lord, guess what? All of Israel gets, gets land. Except for the Levites who are priests and then are given food through the sacrifices and offerings. All of Israel. So you know what that means when Israel goes into the promised land? None of Israel is poor. The only poor people would be people that have made poor decisions, right? Which we saw in Ruth. 
when the, the, the parents leave Bethlehem, they forsake their field and they go off into Moab. And when they forsake their field, guess what? Somebody else takes it over. They've either made poor decisions or they are foreigners that come into the land and have nothing. And here's why I say that. Israel doesn't need to give those people anything. They don't owe them anything. Those people have made poor decisions. They're not a part of the beloved people of God that have been freed. They're foreigners. They're isolated. They're poor. They've made terrible decisions. And you know what the Lord says? Love them. You know why? Because that's how I've loved you. See, these people, given this law, are part of the generations or just a generation or two removed from the people of Israel where the beloved people of God were slaves. Where they had nothing. Where they were oppressed and subjugated. And we are told the Lord God heard their cry and answered it. He freed them. He brought them up out of slavery and then He quite literally rained down bread and meat from heaven in order to love those who could not provide for themselves. The only reason that this law makes sense The only way that Israel is going to be able to not just adhere to this law, and that's not what we're after, right? We're not after cold obedience. We're after being transformed into being holy like our God. The only way for Israel to take this law within them, to live by it, is to know and see and have experienced that they have been loved this way. They were poor once. And the Lord Himself loved them. They were sojourners once in a foreign land, isolated and alone, and the Lord God heard their cry. They can care this way because they've been cared for this way. It goes on, and the Lord God says, You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by My name falsely and profane the name of God, for I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord. I, I love this last little sentence here. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Now, the first thing that comes to my mind when I read that sentence is, what kind of people are these? That the Lord would have to make a law, a command to tell them, do not curse the deaf that cannot hear it. And do not put a stumbling block before the blind who cannot see it. Well, the answer to what kind of people are these is people. Men and women. Have any of those here? in the room with us this morning? That's the first thing that comes to my mind is, oh my goodness, what state is humanity in? And then the second one is, why is this an important law for the Lord to give? And and here's what it is. The Lord is saying, you shall love rather than abuse even when you can't get caught. 
and you shall love rather than abuse even those that cannot repay you for it and who won't even know that you've loved them. Let me say that again. You shall love rather than abuse, even when you cannot get caught for your abuse. And you shall love rather than abuse, even when those that you are loving will not know it. Real love is selfless. And we have a hard time being selfless. Because it feels like there's so much for us to worry about for ourselves. But Israel has experienced this kind of selfless love. Hear these words from the Lord from Deuteronomy chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. That sounds good, right? Your treasured possession. Israel, the Lord has chosen you out of all the nations. But listen what it says next. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Other places it says it's... it's that Israel is a stiff-necked people. The Lord literally says, He didn't love you because you were lovable. He didn't love you because of what you could give back. He didn't select you for His team because you were going to be an all-star. No, in fact, you were the fewest of all the people, but He has chosen to love you because His love is selfless. Israel can love simply because they are called to love. They can love selflessly because they have been loved selflessly. It goes on. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor. Defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not slander. You shall not hate, the Lord God says. The Lord is dealing with the heart posture that we have towards people. Slandering people shows that we are, in fact, against other people. That we are not for them, but we are opposed to them. Hating other people shows that we would rather persist in that position of being against them than actually working to reconcile with them. Right? Vengeance, grudges, They show that any rift that we have is only going to grow. It's only going to get worse. And the Lord is saying that love persists. Even when you don't like someone. Even when they have sinned against you. Even when you have been wronged. Love persists. But again, think of what you've just received from somebody else. If we learn by what we experience, we have just been wronged. 
shouldn't we wrong them? We have just been sinned against, shouldn't we sin against them? We have not been loved, but perhaps even hated, so how can we love those around us? And the answer is, this is the way that Israel has been loved. Israel is a rebellious people. Israel is a people that even as the Lord is codifying His relationship with them, giving the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai, officially making them, Israel, His beloved people, they are worshiping an idol. Again and again, Israel rebels against the Lord, and again and again, the Lord forgives, addresses that sin, and persists in love. Another coffee cup verse. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world, so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son so that whoever believes in Him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Right? It sounds great. But when the Lord in John chapter 3 is saying, for God so loved the world, that means He's loved the world that has been defined for us from Genesis up to that point. Skim through the story of the world from Genesis up to that point, and let me tell you, it is not a lovable place. It is full of violence and vengeance, perverse actions, men and women not loving each other, but using one another, rebelling, cursing, forsaking the Lord his God. And he stands up, And he says, I have so loved you, let me give you my most prized possession. This is the way that Israel has been loved. This is the way that we have been loved. And only when we get our arms around it can we love others this way. Early on in my life, my dad, who was in the Air Force for the, the whole of my childhood, we, uh, we got stationed at Monterey. My dad went to be a part of the Defense Language Institute. We were getting ready to go over to Germany, so we went there for an immersion course in German. And I remember during that time, my dad would come home, and he would just like constantly try and have a conversation with my mom in German. That was just, that was the, right? You, gotta, you come home from it, you got to study. And so that's, that's how we studied. It was spoken around our house. And guess what? We moved over to Germany a year later, and it was a lot easier for me to pick up the language when I was there because I'd already heard it. It was still a foreign language to me. It wasn't my native tongue. I didn't grow up speaking it. I needed to learn it, and I needed to hear it, and I needed to be around it. Love is a foreign language to us. Real love is a foreign language to us. Lust is not. Using one another is not. Right? I, I, my favorite thing is to ask people, what do you love most about your spouse? And it always sounds like this, I love the way they make me feel. Right? Which is a really kind slash hallmark way of saying, I love what they give me. Yeah, like, like a cell phone or like an Amazon gift card. Right? That's how we love people. Because it's a foreign language to us and the invitation is come. Sit again and again and again. Be cared for by the Lord because only as you and I are cared for by the Lord can we care for others. Let's keep going quickly. Finally, the second one. 
We care for others as we are cared for by the Lord, and we give to others as we recognize all that we have been given. The, the truth of the matter is, and let me just tell you this, maybe you guys don't know this. I, I've said this to multiple pastor friends over the last several weeks. In the last two months, this is a, a true statement, in the last two months, I have had more requests for references to marriage counselors than I have in the entire five years of Mercy's Door being a church. The last year and a half has been hard. It has been stressful. There has been change after change and like a bridge. The only way to see where the cracks are is to put stress on it. And when you put stress on it, the cracks start to show. And men and women, and this includes me and my wife, this has been a season of stress testing. And as I talk to people and as I walk with people in the midst of it, what I hear of people is that they feel like they have nothing left to give. And the key word there is give. And it's the right word, and here's why. Because loving is giving. Love is costly. Nothing is more costly than love. And if you want an example, look at the personification of love. Look at love incarnate, Jesus Christ. He spent his entire life giving. Giving his time. Giving his wisdom. Giving his power. Giving his emotional energy. Giving his resources. And finally, in culmination, giving his life. Real love is costly because real love gives. And we know this, right? Because most of our relationships are what I would call a 50-50 relationship. I'll give as much as you give. I'll give as long as I receive. Now here's the problem with that. You can't love like the Lord in that relationship. And here's why. Because the Lord is calling you to give God-sized love while what you're receiving is broken human love. And you will always find yourself empty, unable to give in that place. Unless you are loved by the Lord, you can't love others like the Lord. Unless you are being given love by the Lord, you cannot give love to others like the Lord. Look at the same passages we just walked through. Gleaning, the law of gleaning. You're never going to find that in a business plan. You won't. You know why? It's not productive. It's costly. It gives. But guess what? Who gave Israel the land? The Lord did. Who rained down manna from heaven when they were hungry? The Lord did. Who brought water out of rocks? The Lord did. Who has been and will continue to be their great provider? The Lord has. Are you kidding me? A couple grapes on the ground? A couple ears of grain? 
He rains bread from heaven. But that only works if we actually have experienced and have been given and trust that the Lord will continue to give. Stealing, lying, robbing that the Lord prohibits. Why do we do those things? It's not because we like it most times. Right? If we're being honest, most people steal or lie because they think they have to. In a moment, they feel like they have no other choice to get what they need. Right? We steal because we lack. We lie because we're afraid that shame or guilt will come upon us if we are caught in what has occurred. And the only way to get out of that is if we have been provided for and all our needs have been met by the Lord, if we have been so covered with grace and mercy and righteousness by the Lord that we, we can give away our reputation because we have a better reputation. How can we love those who don't love us back? Only by being loved by the Lord. I counsel couples all the time. The only way your marriage works is if you commit to loving your spouse without your spouse loving you. It's the only way it works. Now guess what? That dries up really quickly if you're doing it on your own strength. Because I'll tell you, you need love like you need water and air. And so really, the only way that your marriage works is if you love your spouse while being so loved by the Lord that you don't need your spouse to love you back. That's the only way we can love. We give as we have been given by the Lord. Love is the culmination of what it means to be morally holy. Be holy as I am holy, the Lord sums up with love your neighbor as yourself. But we can't do it unless the antecedent is there. That He is the Lord our God. That He has loved us. That He is loving us and He will love us. Let me say that again. He has loved us, church. He is loving us. And He will love us. Stay close to Him. His love is like a fire. When we are close to it, it warms us. But when we walk far from it, it does not go out. It is still there. But we will not feel its effects. I had a counselor this summer who used to say to me again and again as he was just counseling, loving, helping me to grow in my own spiritual health. He said, Michael, daily you need to warm yourself by the fire of the Lord's love. And if you've ever been camping on a fall day, when you wake up in the morning, the best feeling in the world is to go out to the fire and sit next to it and warm yourself. And when you don't feel loved, and when your love for other people is waning, go again and be warmed by His love, filled by His love, 
because it's the only way that we're going to be able to love our neighbor as ourself. Pray with me, church.